The 2023 U.S. Geological Survey said, quote, no effective substitutes exist for gallium arsenide in these applications, applications meaning for high performance chips. And we can see similar issues here with, say, gallium nitride, which is used for high powered advanced radars by the U.S. military. This is a calibrated response. The more tactical answer that, of course, is Secretary Yellen is here in China. And this could be a useful discussion point, perhaps even bargaining chip. The U.S. and Europe don't import huge amounts, so it's not a, a massive factor. It's an important, clear warning, but it won't have a major impact. But it does point in the direction of more and more control. If China really wants to uh, to win the trade war, or at least to make the trade war not happen in the future, uh, then then the growing of the economy is actually the most important thing. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun, joining our discussion on China's latest export controls on key materials for chip making are Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer of Beijing-based Novum RK Technologies. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. So starting next month, overseas buyers may find it hard to purchase products related to two materials, namely gallium and germanium. As Beijing tightens export controls on the rare metals, China's move came days after the Netherlands announced new restrictions on exports of high-end chip-making equipment. Beijing's decision is widely regarded as a countermeasure against the U.S.-led trade tech containment of China. So let me start with uh, Andy. Why has China chosen to place export restrictions specifically on gallium and germanium-related products? Well, if we look at the larger picture here, we know that uh, China and the U.S. are engaged in a technology rivalry uh, that was initiated by the United States, looking to thwart China's economic and technological rise. Mm. And China uh, has always had a policy of looking to work with any country, uh, irrespective of ideology or development choices, but also to staunchly protect its own interests in a very calibrated way. So choosing gallium and germanium is a proportionate response to the latest technology uh, attacks uh, the U.S. has launched against China in the semiconductor sector. So these two materials are used, of course, in making semiconductors as well as other high-tech products such as solar panels. Uh, they're also used, uh, have some military applications and missile systems as well. Mm. So again, I think this is a calibrated response by China. You said uh, actually the U.S. attacks on China's semiconductor sector has been ongoing for quite some time. Why did Beijing wait until now to introduce these export controls, Andy? Well, I think we could look at this from a more macro historical perspective and look at it from more of a tactical perspective. So from a more strategic perspective, effective strategy uh, requires a correct understanding of prevailing power dynamics. And in the past, I think China was in a much weaker position. Uh, so its ability to respond, retaliate was more limited. 
I think now that it's universally recognized, uh, you know, China's economic might, its technological prowess, and it's just general importance to the global economy and to the global political ecosystem gives it a lot more choices. So I think that's kind of a more strategic answer. The more tactical answer then, of course, is Secretary Yellen is here in China. And this could be a useful discussion point, perhaps even bargaining chip, um, who knows, to help these discussions advance in a way that China would like to see. Joseph, what's your view on uh, the timing of this uh, export ban? We know actually a, s- a series of similar restrictions were imposed on exports of other items, such as um, rare earths and uh, some core production technologies months ago. But why now on gallium and germanium? Well, I, th- I think Andy's right. Uh, the timing uh, likely does coincide with Yellen's visit. Uh, it's possible that uh, this is a negotiating position that Maybe they can uh, come to some sort of terms with her and either uh, walk this back or delay it or simply move forward with it. But I think a, a larger issue is what we've seen with the, the recent Dutch uh, decision uh, announcing new restrictions on uh, some semiconductor equipment. And this is on top of limits that were already imposed by Italy, Japan, the United States and others. But I think the key here is that uh, China has been meeting with European leaders and officials repeatedly this year. And there was until I think uh, about a month ago, some optimism uh, that we might see Europe taking a more independent path and not just following the American containment policy. You know, we had Macron's visit um, and Schultz. Uh, there were some positive indicators that we were hoping for that, that appeared to, to be related to those visits. But I think since the G7 and since these recent decisions uh, in Europe, I think there's just more and more uh, of an understanding in Beijing that Europe is really falling in line with the American approach. I think China really wanted to wait until uh, they had a clear understanding of which way Europe was going to lean. And uh, I think that's rather clear at this point. The final thing, though, is given the fact that um, these bans are increasing, these you know export restrictions to China are, are increasing, it may well be that uh, China is saying to itself, you know, why should we deplete our rare earths, mm. selling it to other people, so but they won't in turn sell us the products. If we're going to have to produce our own high-tech equipment, our own chips, and we can't count on people selling us rare earths in the future, then perhaps we should hold on to our own stocks. So there, there may be uh, many different reasons associated with this decision. Yeah, Jiahe, do you have any different interpretation of this? I mean, are these two uh, rare metals more strategic in some way? Because some people say this is actually an overdue move China should have done it long before, right? Well, it's, it's well, in, in, the, in the industry world today, actually, when, when you look at the whole industry production system, uh, there is no product that one country cannot uh, leave upon if, if this product is withdrawn away. I mean, that's easier talking about uh, the, the Chinese economy or the United States economy. That means, you know, China has been, you know, limited from buying all these kind of computer chips from the Western economy. Chinese economy can still work out its own uh, computer chips. I mean, actually, we have been buying a computer chips uh, company in Hong Kong market. Basically, that's because of this idea that if China can't buy from the world, it will produce by itself. Uh, and when you look at uh, the Western economy, the, the U.S. economy, economy for particular, that is the same thing. If China does not export our uh, rare earths, that will pose pressure to the U.S. economy. But U.S. will still be able to buy uh, some of the rare earths from some other countries, although that will be a much higher price. That That is the same thing for China, that we can produce our own computer chips. I mean, currently, China is already capable of producing a pretty 
large amount of the low and middle end computer chips or mobile chips that we are currently using, but that will be at a higher cost as well. Mm. So that that's actually the reason that we say globalization is really a benefit to all the economies in the world. That doesn't mean that if you can't um, import something from another economy, that your economy will you know will stop its uh, its running. That that's not the case. But that means your economy will be running at a low efficiency. So so that's the bad thing of trade war that has been started uh, in the past few years. Yeah. Before we continue with the, our chat, I need to clarify some、uh, two concepts of rare earth and、uh, this、uh, so-called rare metal、uh, gallium. And germanium. I don't know if Andy can back me up here. There are two different kind of things. Rare earths includes、um, some fourteen kinds of、um, minerals, but doesn't include gallium and germanium. There, there's some other kind of、um, minerals. So there's a little difference there. Andy, am I right here? Yes. So I actually wrote about this、uh, a few years ago. I I believe it's seventeen so-called rare earth or rare metal minerals. And the issue is this: so it's actually a little bit complicated in、right. that,、um, even though they're called rare earths, they're not actually especially rare.、Mm. But part of the problem,、uh, or the opportunity, or the challenge,、uh, is this: is that、um, they're difficult to make, and for this reason,、uh, many countries,、uh, for different reasons, sometimes political, sometimes economic, have chosen not to produce them. So that's the first point.、Yeah. Uh, the second point is that China. Made a strategic decision decades ago. I believe it was Deng Xiaoping that said that、uh, rare earths or rare metals are the oil of the modern world, and that China could develop a, a leadership position here. And what's important to note is that it's not just the ability to mine rare earth metals, but China is a leader in every phase, from taking it out of the ground, the processing, to the components. And it is not only one of the biggest,、uh, sometimes the only supplier, but it is also the biggest buyer as well. So, in economic terms, we could say that they have both monopoly as well as monopsony power at pretty much every stage of the rare earth supply chain. So, this is、uh, something that is actually not very well appreciated, even by some politicians in the West.、Mm, but、uh, going back a little bit, Andy, do you think China is justified to introduce? Uh, the export controls. So this is a very difficult,、uh, I would say, controversial question. So、mm. um, we have to start with a little bit of international relations theory here. I think that if we look at the global system as anarchic, meaning that、uh, there's no one that can really protect you if you are a country in the international relations world. I think we call it self-help. So if you or I have a problem, and we're in a place like China or the United States,、um, if someone threatens us. We can always call the police. In the international arena, there's no police to call, so every country has to rely on itself. So I think ultimately, you know, when it comes down to it, every country will, and I think must, do what it can to protect its national security. So even, you know, economists talk about the benefits of free trade,、uh, globalization. I think if it reaches such a severe degree,、uh, I think any country will take steps that、uh, to protect itself. And I think this is maybe the situation we're seeing here with China.、Mm. To my knowledge, the U.S. actually、um, introduced this Export Control Act in 1949. That's targeted at the、uh, Soviet Union. But now, Joseph, what's your opinion here? Do you think China is、uh, justified? Yeah, I think it's clearly justified.、Uh, China. In terms of its foreign policy, generally operates on the principle of reciprocity. 
we've seen all these other restrictions coming from uh, uh, this U.S.-led um, tech decoupling policy, which includes many different aspects. And China thus far has taken a very cautious approach. You know, we've seen a lot of tit-for-tat related to the Trump-instigated uh, trade war, which, of course, hasn't been resolved yet. But in terms of specific actions uh, reacting to tech decoupling, uh, China has been much more cautious. I think trying to, to find workarounds, find diplomatic solutions, see which countries were going to, to toe the line or not. But now that that, that policy is firming up in terms of uh, U.S. and its near allies, China is moving, I think, more decisively, but also justifiably with its general position of, of reciprocity. But again, this is, I think, a very, very modest response. It's, I think, being widely interpreted in countries around the world as a warning. Um, it's certainly not a death blow. It will raise prices, as uh, Jia mentioned. But if we put the numbers in perspective, um, the U.S. and Europe don't import huge amounts. Uh, the U.S. received $5 million of gallium and $220 million of gallium arsenide. Germanium was higher with the U.S. taking $60 million, while uh, the EU imported $130 million of, of germanium. And these are in 2022. So it's not a, a massive factor. As Andy said, these aren't actually rare. Many countries can produce these, but at higher cost. I think this is just a very, it's an important, clear warning, but it won't have a major impact. But it does point in the direction of more and more controls. And now that we're on this path, now that we've seen China finally react and, and begin this process of tit-for-tat and reciprocity related to tech decoupling, it, this is where we can expect to see escalations that could be more and more damaging to respective economies. Yeah, but uh, we've seen uh, some other governments like uh, the Dutch government and the Japanese government come up with some reactions, right? The Dutch government has said uh, the European Union must respond to China's latest move. While the Japanese government, they said they were hinted, if you will, they would lodge lawsuit against China at the WTO if there are what it calls some unfair matters taken. So Jiahe, how effective do you expect China's um, control measures to be this time? Well, if, if you look at the size of this uh, trade between China and the world, I, I think the previous gentleman has already mentioned that this is actually a quite a small part. You know, mm. This is more like a gesture and a warning saying that we will not respond nothing to all the trade restrictions that we are uh, currently having. So if you look at the effectiveness of this action, then it, I have to say, to be frank, it's, it's not a very large action because when you look at how the uh, is actually used in industrial uh, decisions, you know, the industrial productions, the producing of computer chips is actually increasing your efficiency of materials, I mean metals, which means if you don't have any rare earths, then you can still make the same product, but at a lower efficiency of the machine. So that's the first point. And the second point is many other countries are also exporting this, uh, these kinds of rare earths, although at higher costs. So that means they can still buy it. And if you look at the cost of rare earths to the whole industrial system, that's a very small part. Mm. So, so looking at China's decision, it's actually more like a kind of warning uh, or a gesture that we are not reacting nothing to all the unfair trade limitations that we have got, we will react. But if you talk about how strong it is, it's not that strong. I mean, the strongest thing that China can actually do in the computer chip industry is that stop importing. That sounds very strange because China is actually the country that when the United States says, okay, we don't want to export to you. But the largest damage that China will do to the computer chip industry in both Europe and the US is actually not importing that. That will hurt China itself, of course. But that will also hurt the exporter by a very large extent because there is a huge amount of money they're actually um, getting from the Chinese market. And actually, if you look at what the 
not the politicians have, have been saying, the businessmen, they are actually saying that the US and Europe shall not stop the export to China of these products. Well, if you look at the words that has been signed by Bill Gates, he has actually mentioned for many times that these trade restrictions are not good for the US economy, actually. That's because if they don't export anything to China, I mean, any high-end computer chips, then the case is that, first of all, the US companies will not get the money. And second is that China will produce its own equipment. And this will put all the funds to the Chinese companies that are rival to uh, companies like Intel, uh, Microsoft, these kind of companies. So you will grow rival in a large market that actually has 1.4 billion people. So that's actually a very uh, misleading decision, that's I would think. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back after this. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're talking about China's latest export controls on key materials for chip making. Then to Andy, both Jiahe and Joseph said a it wouldn't affect the international market that much. But why did the Dutch government demand the EU respond? And how do you expect the EU would respond to this? Well, you know, I think this is a good question. I'd like to maybe clarify a little bit here that uh, I think that some of these materials, so if we look at, say, gallium, Mm. uh, and in particular gallium arsenide, uh, which is used for high-performance chips that... The 2023 U.S. Geological Survey said, quote, no effective substitutes exist for gallium arsenide in these applications, applications meaning for high performance chips. Mm. And we can see similar issues here with, say, gallium nitride, which is used for high powered advanced radars by the U.S. military. Um, So I think there are certain materials components that are actually critical and very, very difficult, if not impossible, to replace uh, in the short term. Indeed. And you know, I think this is also why we see such concern in the semiconductor sector as well, in that if you're looking to make the most advanced semiconductors, you can't do it without EUV lithography machines. Mm. And the only company that makes these machines uh, is ASML uh, in the Netherlands. Similarly, TSMC uh, in Taiwan, uh, is really the main, if not the only, I think they have what more than 90% market share of these, of the most advanced, like two nanometer, three nanometer, five nanometer chips. So this is a real problem. And I think this is also part of China's approach is to find a narrow, but very, very painful way of expressing you know, its response. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I describe this as very, very calibrated. I think Europe is an interesting question in that The Europeans are caught in a very, very awkward position in that they don't necessarily want to go along with the Americans. And, you know, one of the advantages of being here in Beijing, of course, is that uh, it's the capital of China. So, you know, every country that China has diplomatic relations with has an embassy here, has an ambassador here. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to speak informally with the representatives of these countries. And underneath the surface, you know, there are many things they have to say. Uh, but they may not actually believe or really want to do. And I would put countries like Korea, uh, like the Netherlands, like Germany, in this category that in some sense are being strong-armed 
to going along with what the U.S. wants to you know, build this coalition against China. Mm. So I would take the European stance with a grain of salt, not to say that they do not have their grievances against China. They certainly do but that it might not be uh, as monolithic as the Western media might want you to think. Right. As um, Andy just mentioned, these two uh, rare metals are of a critical... Uh, sorry, actually, sorry, I wanted, I, I wanted to say this too. According to my understanding, there's 17 rare earth elements and germanium and gallium are not part of the 17. Yes, that's, that's what I was trying to clarify. So actually, um, the previous action or similar um, export controls by China on rare earths haven't generated desired effect. So maybe that's why Beijing comes up with this follow-up measure, if you will. And um, like Andy just said, gallium is of critical use to uh, the semiconductor manufacturing industry. And well, certain, certain semiconductors, right, not all of them. Right. Then um, what do you expect those affected industry players to do faced with China's export bans? Well, I think this depends, you know, how versatile they are. Because, you know, we look at, uh, say, Huawei as a great example that when it was cut off from the advanced semiconductor chips that it needs to make 5G smartphones, mm. it destroyed their business. I, I think, you know, one, they had to sell the smartphone unit because it was just a, not a viable thing to do. Uh, to continue this business because there were no replacements for these chips. Similarly, uh, I would not be surprised at all if some businesses uh, were forced to shut. But also we see in Huawei a tale of resilience as well as that they found ways to de-Americanize mm. their supply chain. And sometimes it takes years to find suppliers to develop the components to, to replace them. And you may not have the same functionality. But so I think it depends. I think we really have to see. But certainly, you know, the, I think that there are businesses that are very acutely impacted by this. Um, but in the overall scheme of things, I think, again, it's more signaling on China's part. The most pressing issue, I think, the, for those overseas importers of the rare metals, they either have to find new providers of those metals or they have to find some alternative um, metals for it. According to, you know, U.S. Uh, Geological Survey, the, the U.S. has the largest uh, germanium reserves in the world, actually with nearly 3,900 metal tons and accounting for 45% of the world's total, which I guess can, can totally sustain the demand from its allied countries for years, right? So do you think the, the importers, especially those in uh, Europe or other countries like Korea, may uh, refer to the U.S.? For the rare metal, Jiahe. Well, actually, when when you look at the rare rare earths, actually this applies for actually any any country uh, and any material. Is that uh, having the the resources and the mines is one thing, and having the industry uh, to get these resources out of the ground and refine them is is another. If you look at the development of the human society right now, we are very huge at this moment. We have about eight billion people all around the world. Uh, that means. If these countries actually separated from uh, separated from each other, say North America separated from China, and China separated from from the whole of Europe, we can live on ourselves. That, that's no problem. But the only thing is the cost. It's always it's always not the question of whether you have it or not, but it is actually the question of how much you're costing for that. So if you look at this uh, problem from this view, you can you can get the picture much clearer. Well, 
when the U.S. is saying to China, we, we don't want to export the computer chips and mobile chips to you as, as smoothly as before, that doesn't mean that China will not have chips in the future, but that means China will have, uh, you know, walls of computer chips at higher price. And, and that's the same thing applying when China says that, okay, if, if our importing of uh, computer chips are not so smooth, then we will restrict all our uh, exporting of rare earths. That, that's also the same thing to other economies and industries that's using these. They're not going to vanish because because they can't import uh, the rare earths. They're going to pay higher price for lower quali uh, quality and lower uh, quantity of rare earths. So this is kind of a counter effect when we talk about the, the trade war that has been going on. And, and it's definitely not good for anyone. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, but the only thing is that if, if it's being started, then there's the no way back. Will, they, they, can't, they, they can't actually get Get, get themselves away from it. Say, okay, we're we're only we're the country that getting the penalty only, and we're mm. not fighting back. So, so that's not the case. So, are you suggesting that it may lead to some new rounds of uh, uh, negative interactions, such as uh, export bans on each other, one after another, Jacko? Well, when you look at all these actions in a trade war, is that you, you can't you can't say okay you're going to put everything on me and um uh, well, for any country in the world. As it has been mentioned, that what what they can't do is that they can't say okay we're not uh, acting anything. So. Uh, Put your restrictions to us, and we will just accept them. That's not going to work because if if you keep on doing that, if you're not fighting back when you are restricted from importing of anything, then that means you will give the person who is raising all these restrictions a kind of motivation to do more because they're not getting any fight back. Uh, so so it's it's a very uh, euro and the traditional thing to mm -hmm. fight back when you you have been fought upon. Yeah, it's not traditional for them, but uh, do you think they might come up with some uh, you know countermeasures? Well, uh, currently, when you look at what China has been doing, is that it's setting this rule, but it's not saying we're going to cut the rare earth export right now. So yeah. that's two different things. It is only saying, saying that we are putting all these management rules on the export of rare earths. But yeah, you have to acquire a license first. Yeah, like yeah they have to acquire the license, but we, we didn't see at this moment that uh, if, if you get the license, you still can't export as much as you, you could before. It's, it's actually kind of setting this switch on the export mm. of rare earths, but we didn't pull the trigger of the switch yet. So I think that would depends on what kind of trade uh, policies that China gets in the future right. uh, to decide that whether we will con really control the, the amount of rare earths export at last. Mm. Yeah, Joseph, um, you know, sorry. You know, one of the things that we're, that we're hearing is, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why China has hesitated to put this type of policy in place, and that's, you know, this uh, Western refrain that uh, supply chains originating in China or unreliable. And so when people talk about de-risking or decoupling, uh, they often point to the possibility of policies like these. So mm -hmm. India is saying, well, we can, don't worry, we can source these from other countries. And India, unlike, say, the United States or Europe, can, uh, believes that it can buy it from Russia, for example. And there's a, a very large mining company in Congo that, that appears to be very excited about this new policy. But the, the bigger concern is, you know, Strategically, it is reciprocity, but it's also the, the, the problem is that the U.S. wants countries to decouple from China. It wants these countries not to, to be dependent on uh, Chinese rare metals or rare earths or any sort of products. And so the concern is that the policy almost becomes self-defeating in, in the sense that if it's imposed in a robust way, that it may, it may um, help actualize what the U.S. actually seeks. But uh, that's not what, what's happening right now, right? No, but that's the concern, right? In other words, if, as Jaha mentioned, this is just a mechanism, we might see that they continue to sell as much as they as before, even more, who knows? Then you're saying it, it's not so wise for China to do it? 
What I'm saying is, if you look at the language that came out of New Delhi, they immediately linked this to this U.S. narrative that supply chains that are, that originate in China are unreliable, and you need to look elsewhere. And so India is saying, don't worry, we can we can look to Russia, we can look to the Congo, uh, we can form a strong strategic partnership with the United States and uh, avoid dangers associated with with uh, sub, uh, Chinese supply chains. And so that's exactly what. The United States wants. So the problem is, and, and Beijing understands this. Beijing understands that you know if they get into this game of of reciprocity, where they're going to start imposing real restrictions, then mm. it, it's actually achieving the the policy that the U.S. wants. But that that's、uh, like、uh, Jaha just mentioned. It's not like we、um, entirely ban the export. It's just a like an international practice, common practice. It's been done、that's、by、right. Japan. It's been done by the Netherlands. Uh, by、uh, right. and, uh, and by the, the Dutch, U.S. as well. Dutch also, the Dutch also, you know, did not ban. It, it, it was they also have to apply for export licenses. Okay, so you know, it's it is just arming the government with a similar policy mechanism. But if it's if it's actually employed in a robust way, right, then it runs the risk of of as I've said, achieving this objective that the U.S. You know, has in mind. Right. It it's obviously is some、uh, side effects of wool after China introduced this kind of、um, controls.、Um, Andy, your opinion or suggestion on how China can avoid such backfire? Obviously, everybody knows sanctions are double-edged swords. So how how can China reduce its negative impact of its、uh, export controls as much as possible? Well, I think any important complex relationship. Uh, requires both carrots and sticks,、mm. and I think your trade relationships between major countries certainly are among the most complex types of relationships. So certainly, you know, a country, China, the U.S., France, can impose tariffs, other types of narrowly targeted sanctions against another country that may not necessarily have an overall negative impact, and in fact. Could be a positive, contribute to、uh, an overall a more positive relationship.、Mm. So a lot of this, I think, depends on a country's, I guess, I would say, bureaucratic competence in its ability to、uh, gather detailed information in a timely basis, get it to the right people, understand the different linkages、uh, amongst different categories,、uh, product categories,、uh, unintended consequences as much. Much as humans are able to to identify them, and again, I mean, it's like any complex human behavior, right? We have to use both negative and positive incentives to get what we want.、Mm. And I think, you know, it seems to me at least that、uh, China has been doing overall a, a pretty good job over the last forty years. You know, since、uh, the beginning of reform and opening, in managing very very complex relationships, not just with the United States,、uh, but with other countries around the world as well. Right, but、uh, for those companies, do you have any suggestions? You know, when China cut its rare earths export quota、um, in、uh, 2010 amid tensions with the U.S., China's、uh, global market share actually dropped from、um, 97 percent to about、uh, 60 percent in 2009. That's nine years this quota system was introduced. So, what can those Chinese companies do? Yeah, that's a good question.、Um, so, again. You know, I think the other thing is will be very difficult for them in terms of the degree to which one does things, right?、Mm. So the other issue is that you know we've we've seen this movie before. China has taken measures to、uh, restrict rare earth metals, and this has caused the U.S. to 
prioritized creating its own domestic supply chain. I believe the company was called Molly Beatum. I don't know. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, but it led to investments in rare earth mines in the United States. But then what happened? Uh, China then, because again, it plays at every part of the supply chain, both as an important buyer as well as supplier. So mm. it has both monopoly and monopsony power. Then actually lowered the price making the mine in the U.S. Uh, economically unviable, and I think it ultimately went bankrupt. So, again, you know, these are very complex phenomenon. Um, you know, if one can overplay one's hand. I don't know if China did. Here, you know, you mentioned the decline in market share. Mm. Uh, again, I, I don't think I'm expert enough in the details of this to know, but I do know that these are very complex relationships and very they have very complex dynamics. Jia mm. you're an investment expert. Do you think the decline of uh, market share of Chinese firms is necessarily a, a bad thing? Uh, you, you mean the decline of Chinese firms in, in the rare earth industry, right, because of these restrictions? And potentially in this uh, gallium and uh, germanium-related uh, products. Uh, well, that, that depends on which one you're talking about. If, mm. you, if you talk talk about the exporters of rare earth components, I mean the mining companies, right. and and with the actual employment of these restrictions, if that really happens in the next few months or few years, then that's the best thing for them. I mean, they're exporting uh, things at a lower quantity. But there is another thing is that uh, recently the stock market has actually been performing very positively towards these companies because investors uh, start to believe that with the reduction of Chinese export of rare earths, uh, and you will see the price hike for the rare earths. Mm. So the stock price of these companies have actually gone up by like 20 or 40 percent in the past a few trading days. So, so this is very uh, amazing. And you can't, you can't really deny this possibility that uh, if the price really goes up by a very large extent, then the miners and exporters will be able to make some money out of it. Mm. Uh, it it's, it's a bit like when the OPEC was formed in the Middle East, then uh, all the countries, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, they started to cooperate with each other and set restrictions on their export. And th that finally led to the rising of the oil price and a high profit for them. So that's also a possibility. Right. Then go back a little bit to this question. Do you think it's possible for the affected companies to find alternatives, um, you know, for the near future or in longer or midterms? I think for the for the rare earths themselves, it's very hard for you to find some kind of you know alternative material. I mean that that will well, you can still make the machinery as you want. You can still make the chips as you like. They will be at lower quality and a higher cost because mm -hmm. rare earth has has its actually its use to change uh, the physical features of these uh, you know uh, metals and stuff like that. So it's definitely uh, you you can't well scientifically speaking, you can't really find a lot of substitute because our science industry has been developed for hundreds of years. If, mm -hmm. if they can find the substitute, they have already found that. Uh, but you talk about if you talk about the countries that actually export uh, these kind of rare earths, then then they can find uh, quite many you know substitute countries like you know uh, some African countries, Brazil, Russia. I think the importing from Russia will be even harder compared with the importing from China. Actually, I mean, think about the war between Russia and Ukraine at this moment. But uh, for some African countries, yeah, you you will find a substitute export from them. But that's facing a few things. First is that this cannot be conducted in just a, a few years because you know building a new mine, employing people, hiring experts to to mine this inside, it takes 
you know, three to five years to build all these production uh, capabilities. Mm. Uh, and the second is that who will invest in these mines? Because China has been saying that, okay, we, we, we will uh, put these, uh, you know, procedures on the export. But China did not promise to cut its export by some extent in the future. Maybe in the future, China will say, okay, we will not using this switch. We will not uh, stop, uh, you know, cut our export. Mm. And that means if you invest like billions of dollars into mining Africa, and five years later, you will face the competition from China, and th- and that's not a good thing. So it's a it's a very tricky thing. If I am a businessman, people say, okay, China is going to set a lot of restrictions on on its export of uh, rare earths, and do you want to invest in a new mine in Africa? I will face this, uh, you know, this uncertainty that mm. China might not cut its export, and if China does not cut its export, can my mine compete with the Chinese export? Because Chinese mine ha- has been huge and fulfilled with, uh, you know, experts and equipments. So what happens if I invest in a lot of money in Africa and five years later, the real earth price even dropped by like 20% and will I get my investment return back? Mm. Uh, the government will not promise me with that investment return. So th- that's also a tricky thing. You know, there are a lot of tricky things in the business world. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back right after the break. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, Stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes. Of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, Mulan said... Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Yeah, <laughs> good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're talking about China's latest export controls on key materials for chip making. And uh, the rare metal export curbs are the first export restrictions to be announced uh, since China's Foreign Relations Act came into effect. So, Joseph, what ramifications could this have? You know, whether or not the two are directly related is not uh, important. Uh, Mm -hmm. China could have imposed these restrictions with uh, the the existing laws. And and as we've noted already, its foreign relations have long employed uh, uh, reciprocity, Uh, meaning, again, if some country does something to China, China often responds in kind. Uh, I think what is important to note is that these two developments, both the possible restrictions and as well as the law, are both signs of uh, darkening uh, times. You know, I, I would go back to something that Jaha was just saying and uh, offer a little bit of a counter argument. Okay. Um, we can look at the example he mentioned uh, OPEC and um, 
you know, the, the idea that, that I think there was an earlier example of a company that was started in the U.S. and then and not not related to OPEC, but related to rare earths or rare metals. And then uh, um, China adjusted its policy and, and the company went bankrupt. The thing that I think is different now, and, and we but we can look here in the example of, of uh, Saudi Arabia, is that this year uh, the United States became the world's leading oil producer. And this is something that the U.S. has been moving towards strategically for the past several years. And it's something that OPEC and especially Saudi Arabia tried to undercut. You know, they, they lowered prices for a while uh, in order to hammer the shale oil industry in the United States. But the U.S. was committed to this strategic goal. And as a result, we've seen Biden now take the extraordinary step of opening up even more protected uh, land in uh, Alaska to the horror of uh, American environmentalists to consolidate this position that the U.S. has now taken as the world's leading um, oil producer. And I would assume that uh, given all the national industrial policy that we see coming from Washington, you know, some things like the CHIPS legislation, but also efforts to reshore and build capacities, that they, you will see U.S. government policies, uh, subsidies, uh, what have you, that will make sure that there are alternatives, that there are alternatives being produced in the United States, and um, uh, that the United States will not be relying on supply chains for critical metals from Africa or, or anywhere else. And Jacko, do, do you see any ramifications in terms of uh, investment? Um, well, when we when we look at investment, we, we have actually made um, that decision, uh, to say, to buy some of the Chinese, uh, you know, chip building uh, countries. Be- well, that's not because China has been, uh, you know, this recent move, but because of the uh, what has been going on in the past few years. If you look at the trade tension between China and the U.S., I mean, uh, from the business point of view, it's a very bad decision for the U.S. to stop its exporting of uh, chips to China. I would say mm-hmm. it, the, the the best thing they would do is uh, keep on selling whatever you have to China, stop all the Chinese companies to grow because you know if intel can keep on exporting all its products to china chinese products are not compatible uh, with them in the market so that means chinese companies does not have any chance at all uh, but Politically speaking, it looks like everyone is saying, okay, you want to uh, restrict the development of China and stop sending the ships to them. Mm. So so this has been going on and we can't change that. I mean, even Bill Gates can't change that. He's mm-hmm. keep on talking that we can't restrict the export, but no one's listening. So so it looks like it has been going on. I mean, this is a fact that US is keep on restricting the exporting of chips to China. Then fine, we, we are investors, we talk about facts. Mm. So what this will mean to Chinese companies is that they will face much less rivals in the market. So, and they can get a lot of subsidy from the government for their investment and research because the government realized that, okay, we can't buy enough chips from US. So that's a very wonderful thing for businesses. I mean, you, on one hand, you get a lot of bank loan, government investment. On the other hand, you don't have rivals in your market. So so that's wonderful. So, so we bought some companies in recent days in the Hong Kong market that's uh, specialized in the chip production in China. So, mm-hmm. so that's about uh, the investment ramification, if I would say. Right. But the question is how long it can sustain. I think if you look at what has been going on in OPEC, uh, OPEC was built in the Middle East, you know, decades ago. And since OPEC was built, uh, the the countries in the Middle East actually organized. Uh, they organized. It, it's, it's not that they, they have OPEC and they stop exporting uh, their oil anymore. That's not the case. Uh, what has been going on is that uh, they, start to, they started to be able to um, you know, uh, 
works things on the export, they, they, they can manipulate all the export activities. That means when the oil price is too high, uh, and uh, things like new energy, uh, alternative energy are started to be developed. And what the OPEC has been doing is that they say, okay, we will uh, rise our export. And that brought the oil price down, uh, and all the other alternative energy started to be, uh, you know, felt uh, this pressure from the oil. And when the oil price is too low, say, say 20 to 30 dollar per barrel, and the OPEC said, okay, we're, we're going to start, uh, well, limit the export to, to put the price upward to a level uh, where the profit can be maintained. So if, if you think about China's uh, industry of uh, rare earths, that, that's probably, probably the similar thing uh, as what the OPEC has been doing to the oil, is that you know China will uh, have its policy of exporting rare earths mm. depends on the trade situation and the price of a rare earth. So if you, if you look at what the OPEC has brought to Middle East countries, uh, it actually brought more profits to them over the past few decades. So I think that's probably happening the same thing to the rare earth industry of China. Well, actually, U.S. media said China has played a trump card in the chip war, but can the export restrictions on um, gallium and germanium turn out to be a turning point uh, in the U.S. launched trade tech war on China is another question. So, Andy, what do you think? Uh, what do you mean by a turning point? I mean, it seems China has been in this passive situation since um, U.S. launched this specially containment efforts um, of China's chip industry, right? Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, so I think that... Um I don't see this as the turning point, but maybe March 2021 as the turning point. You know, China for decades has wanted to have an amicable relationship with the United States. But I think that it came to the realization, uh, you know, after Biden took office and there was no change, especially no drop in the tariffs uh, and escalation and provocative actions, that this might not be possible. So uh, I think China taking a page from the Ronald Reagan playbook, where Ronald Reagan said, if we can't make them see the light, we'll make them feel the heat. So if you remember in March 2021 at the meeting in Alaska, uh, Yang Jiechi, uh, you know, really blasted the United States publicly. And I think this shows China taking a much tougher stance towards the United States. And again, you know, initially trying to educate, trying to inform. Uh, now really making them feel not only the heat, but even some pain uh, when they don't uh, act in a more uh, cooperative fashion. Actually, it's not the first time China has responded to U.S. containment with some counter uh, measure. We've seen Beijing slapping sanctions on, on U.S. chipmaker Micron, right? And uh, now it's restricting exports of vital rare metals. Is Beijing almost running out of bases? Uh, a bit sleeves, uh, Andy? Oh, I think far from it. In fact, I think uh, China probably has most, if not all, of the high cards here. And that it might be the U.S. that is running out of cards to play. Uh, the card it still has left, of course, is the technology card. And I think what's very important to watch over the next few years is can China actually develop a largely indigenous semiconductor supply chain that is insulated from American attacks. And if it can, uh, then I think the U.S. truly will be out of cards. Then what cards do you expect China still can play? Well, I think, if, you know, to use uh, an American framework uh, called DIME, D-I-M-E, uh, Diplomatic uh, Informational Military Economic. So if we look at the E, 
economic. Uh, China's economy is what expected to grow at, what, 5% this year. This is going to be 30% of global growth. China's economy is already the largest in purchasing power parity terms. The market is still much more open uh, to countries around the world than the United States market is. So even though the U.S. market is, is still the biggest, it's not as open. So uh, the, we can check the economy box. If we look at diplomacy, I think China really has advanced uh, significantly on the diplomatic front from the rapprochement, the brokering the rapprochement between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, the recent recognition by Honduras of the PRC. We can look at the Solomon Islands. Uh, we look at other multilateral initiatives. China's a part of existing ones like the UN, WTO, mm. uh, newer ones like the SCO, a Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, informationally, I think China still has a little bit of a ways to go. Um, you know, that's uh, an area that I think historically has been a challenge for China. Militarily, uh, you know, the, the, the humorous comment I like to make is that Bruce Lee said that I do not fear the man that knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Mm -hmm. So this means that militarily, uh, China really is just focused on Taiwan, uh, a very narrow part of the world. The U.S. is spread very thin militarily. So even though it has a larger military budget, uh, at least, you know, by looking at published numbers, that it's spread very thin, whereas China really is only a very narrow set of military objectives and has spent decades being prepared uh, if it needs to, uh, to act on those. So I would say, you know, if we look at it from that perspective, again, China has most, if not all of the high cards. And Jiahe, your take here? Well, if, if you talk about the trade war between China and US right now, I mean, you have to think about the fact that China is uh, currently uh, working at about one-fifth of the U.S. Uh, economy. I mean, if you talk about the per capita GDP. Uh, so that means uh, you're fighting an unequal war. So so that's very hard for the uh, policymakers of China. Uh, the best thing that China can actually do is keep on increasing our GDP. I mean, if, if you compare the two countries, that is that China is having about four times the population of the United States, uh, but about one-fifth of the per capita GDP. So we're having similar economic size, but you're having uh, very different uh, rooms for policy making, basically because when you look at the industrial chain, that China is uh, working at a middle to low end uh, in most of the industries. So if, if China really wants to uh, to win the trade war, or at least make the trade war not happen in the future, uh, then then the growing of the economy is actually the most important thing. Uh, I mean, if you think about that in maybe two decades, China's per capita GDP meets the level of the current level of say, South Korea. Uh, so that's somewhere between 30 southern USD, then that means that the size of the Chinese economy will be two to three. Well, I think the US economy will be developing as well. So you probably have like two times the size of the United States. Then at that time, the trade war between China and the US will be uh, more equal compared with now. And last one, Elise, to Joseph. First of all, there are there are clearly many ways that China could escalate this. Andy was making clear some of these. The key for me, and, and this is the conversation that I've had with, with Chinese policymakers who've discussed this tech decoupling with me, and, and they're very, very concerned about it um, up and down the, the, the government, is um, there, there are two aspects here, and, and one of them that, that generally gets neglected uh, in the conversation, which is, on the one hand, there's this capacity to produce uh, high tech. It's the capacity to uh, uh, contribute uh, products that um, that are part of the supply chain um, that that go out and have a, a global reach, but it's also another thing to to talk about um, what we might call a 
technological society. In other words, a society that functions um, in a technological way. And in this case, my argument has been that, that China has by far outpaced its nearest competitors in terms of its capacity to function as a technological society. And what I mean is, you know, government that's able to put together policies, implement them, people who go along with them. And, you know, the epitome of this is is China's incredible capacity to, to respond to COVID um, and, and to achieve uh, epi- epidemiologically what, what no other country has, has ever achieved. Um, so, the, the thing that I keep saying to the Chinese policymakers is don't go too far down the road of reaction. You already have this incredible technological society that's out competing other countries. In terms of military strategy, in terms of, of, of defense, uh, China isn't looking for capacity to attack the United States or to attack other countries. Its defensive capabilities right now are more than adequate. Mm, uh, but what, where China really excels and is finding engineering solutions to problems like these, right? And it was problems like the the chips ban. And so I fully expect that um, China will be able to solve that problem in in its own indigenous capacities. And it could do so without necessarily going down a reactive path like this one, which I think we, I think we have some disagreement about how much this possible restriction may have on the industry. Clearly, a lot of countries uh, aren't worried about it. I know CNN has reported negatively about it. Uh, the Dutch government has reacted uh, strongly, but I, I think this is hyperbole on their part. I don't. I, I think they're they're just trying to hype. Um, you know, CNN has a long record of, of hyping anti-China messages, and and you know the, the Dutch yeah. have have been um, trending in that direction themselves. You, so you, you're you know, saying I, China doesn't have to respond to like every time, but it, it needs some tools at hand when I, it's I when agree. it's necessary, right? So I what agree. kind of uh, countermeasures do you? see China still has? Well, to, to be honest with you, the biggest countermeasure that China has, and I think this was a, a point that was was made very subtly by Xi Jinping in a message that, you know, it needs to increase its domestic demand. 20% of China's economy in 2021 was uh, dependent on exports. Now, that's a significant number, but it's, you know, keep in mind that, that uh, most of the countries around the world, they average about 42%, so uh, more than double China in terms of their economic dependence on exports. So, uh, you know, the idea that China is extremely vulnerable to declining exports is, is hyperbole. But, you know, it, it does depend, about 3% of its economy um, is uh, depends on exports to the U.S. With Europe, it's a little higher. And clearly, the, the, the biggest thing that China can do at this point is to, you know, build more uh, local capacity, not only to produce chips, but also to consume more of the products that it makes. And then the rest of the world can figure out what it wants to do in, in terms of having access to the Chinese market. It can, it can decide what uh, ideology is worth. Fair enough. And with that, we come to the end of today's chat. Thanks to Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University. Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer of Beijing-based Novemarket Technologies. And Andy Mogg, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. The show is available on all major podcast platforms. If you've got anything to say about the topic or the show, feel free to tell us. Drop us an email at radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for being with us. We'll have more chat next week. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. 
Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 